This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is a special series on Malcolm X and Black nationalism. In this series, we delve into the background of Malcolm X's action and thought in the context of Black nationalism, correcting the fundamentally mistaken notion that Malcolm X was a civil rights leader. He certainly did not see himself in that way and explicitly argued otherwise. This helps us place the Afro-American struggle in its dimensions beyond the current American nation-state, including the Black Atlantic and beyond. Today, our guest is Saladin Malik Ambar, author of Malcolm X at Oxford Union, Racial Politics in a Global Era, published in 2013 by Oxford University Press. Welcome, Saladin. Hey, Kirk. Thanks for having me. How are you? Great, great. It's it's a real pleasure. So I'm I'm joining you at one uh, part of the Black Atlantic here in uh, Trinidad, and you are uh, joining us from where? From Allentown, Pennsylvania. Right, right. Good, good. Um, can you? Uh, we like to start off our podcast normally by asking the authors to just give us a little bit of a background to yourself uh, in relation to the subject of your book. Sure. Well, I, I grew up in uh, New York City in Queens during the you know 1970s and 80s, and uh, there was still uh, quite a bit of influence uh, of the Nation of Islam, of Malcolm X's teachings. There were old cassette tapes available in Harlem. Uh, my cousin and I, who uh, he really introduced me to Malcolm X when I was growing up. You know, we would go to the Mart on 125th Street in Harlem to pick up some of the old albums and cassettes that were available of Malcolm X. Uh, we would go to the Liberation Bookstore in Harlem, uh, sometimes on weekends, and buy a lot of books on Black history and uh, certainly uh, some of the speeches and writings of Malcolm X. So, you know, in the 80s in New York, there was a great deal of uh, racial violence and tension related to police brutality and lots of uh, episodes that were, you know, deeply troubling. And, you know, as, as a young man who uh, was seeking his own sense of identity, like so many others at that time, um, you know, I gravitated towards Malcolm X as this prolific figure who could speak to my experience, even though he had been deceased for, you know, 20, 25 years when I was coming into my, uh, my youth, you know? Yeah. And uh, you, you mentioned the 1980s in New York. Was uh, hip hop and Public Enemy um, a, a big part of that? I know it was for me. Yeah, without question, without question. You know, um, 
in, in fact, I was a five percenter, like so many okay. rappers and hip hop guys, you know. Arabeer uh, and Rakim were five percenters, weren't they? That's right. They certainly yeah. were. Uh, and Nas and, and that whole world was uh, just a powerful scene uh, for racial identity and, and indeed black nationalism and, and Islam and, and so forth. So, um, you know, without question, um, you know, I, I gravitated towards um, Malcolm's teachings. And, 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 you know, to be honest, there was, you know, this was the time, I don't know if any of your listeners will know, but they could look it up, you know, events uh, at Howard Beach uh, and in Bensonhurst. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of rappers, hip hop artists were, were speaking to, um, you know, the, the racial crimes and hatred uh, towards, towards black folk that were being, um, that were occurring at that time. And so, Hip hop was definitely a, a part of uh, the consciousness raising uh, of, of black youth uh, and others, but certainly black youth during that time. Yeah, and this would have been before the Spike Lee movie. So Malcolm was still, I mean, I, I actually grew up in Toronto, uh, so not too far away from New York, but still a different country and, and context. Um, and, and Malcolm X still was a kind of almost an outlaw figure in the uh, early to mid eighties, uh, Spike Lee did a lot to, I guess, um, bring him into the mainstream acceptability in a lot of ways. But yeah, I remember getting those sort of tapes and, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, cassettes and, you know, it was like, um, you know, dealing in real underground kind of things. I, I don't know if it was different in New York at the time, if it was more open or, or what. No, you, you had to go to, you know, Typically Harlem or maybe Brooklyn, there were some, you know, really great bookstores, you know, in Kiru Books in, in uh, Brooklyn was one. There were, there were a number of them, but, you know, they certainly, you know, they were not at your local Barnes and Noble. You know what I'm yeah. saying? You had to, or, or Tower Records, which was big at the time. You had to go offline and uh, typically go to, you know, you know the black community, um, bookstores and um, marts. To, to get those tapes. And, you know, I remember there was a, an album, um, literally a record album of message to the grassroots. And, you know, Malcolm was, uh, I remember that on the cover. It was sort of, um, you know, stylized version of him on the cover. Uh, yeah. And we would listen to that, to that record. And, and, and again, lots of tapes. Um, and, yeah. if, and one other thing I will say, there was a, a great, uh, television series in New York on Sundays on ABC hosted by Gil Noble called Like It Is. Okay. And we would rush, you know, if we were playing stickball or basketball or whatever we were doing, you know, you'd rush home to be there by one o'clock, maybe 1230, whatever the time it was. And Gil Noble often had, um, you know, old interviews with Malcolm X. Um, he would often play clips of him. And, you know, if you could get a little bite-sized uh, view of Malcolm X, man, that was that was golden. That was awesome. Oh, yeah. That, that's what's so amazing about, uh, like, the Public Enemy uh, uh, album, like, Takes a Nation of uh, Millions, like, with all the little excerpts from Farrakhan and Malcolm. It's like, wow, wow. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, and uh, it's, so your name, uh, Saladin, uh, that's not your birth name, is it? No, um, I was born to an Italian-American uh, mother of Sicilian ancestry. As, as a matter of fact, I'm in the process of becoming an Italian citizen right now. Um, oh, wow. Dual citizenship. So, no, my, you know, my given name, I was named for my father, Ralph Lamb. 
uh, and a rather um, uh, less melodic name than Saladin Malik Ambar. <laughs> um, but Malik Ambar was actually a name I chose uh, out of uh, a book, uh, World's Great Men of Color uh, mm-hmm. by J.A. Rogers. That was one of the books that we, uh, you know, uh, really were empowered by because it had all these great, you know, historical set pieces of figures, you know, from antiquity and, 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 and other and later periods. And Malik Ambar was an Ethiopian slave who had been brought to India and became a Mughal dynasty ruler. And it was, right. Right. Mm-hmm. So, and Saladin was just, a, you know, a, a name um, that I chose, uh, kind of an attribute of Allah at the time. And also, uh, you know, in part inspired by a, a guy who I didn't know very well, but my uncle knew, uh, named Saladin, who is a magnificent uh, brother, very tall, powerful, um, and, you know, well-spoken guy who, you know, I think I kind of admired from afar. So that had a, a good deal to do with it. So there was a lot of this, um, you know, uh, name adopting, uh, style adopting of Malcolm, um, you know, in New York, and I imagine other places, certainly in the, in the North, uh, in the United States. And so we, we were, uh, you know, proud adherence to, you know, a lot of his teachings and really a, a lot of his uh, attitude towards what it meant to be growing up in America as a black person. Right. Uh, were you, just out of curiosity, were you um, a member of the five percenters at, at that time? Was that like, you know how in the Nation of Islam you have the X, um, is, is that at all part of being a five percenter? It was. In fact, um, you know, I guess, you know, um, my five percenter name was Saladin Allah, um, but I, I, you know, ultimately gravitated towards uh, a more conventional Islam, um, you know, as I as I sort of grew um, in, into the faith at that time. Um, but, you know, no, that, you know, I remember, you know, I went to parliaments in New York City, which were, you know, sort of Sunday monthly Sunday gatherings of five percenters from around New York. I, it was inspiring to be around. You know, I mean, we're talking 14, 15, 16 year old, you know, some older, of course, but, you know, black kids who were reading um, a ridiculous amount of history and science mm-hmm. and studying mathematics and, you know, had a, um, a very unique way of viewing the world and their blackness. And it was deeply empowering, you know, to be on that journey uh, at, at the time. So, yeah, I was part of that. Um, of that period in New York. That was a very important time in my life, a kind of period, major period of self-awakening. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I too was inspired by that. And, and I'm not African-American. I mean, my, mm-hmm. my dis, I'm of Indian descent, mm-hmm. uh, but although from the Caribbean, so there's a lot of, you know, um, I mean, so, so my heritage is also Caribbean and, and that involves the wider Afro-American struggle, d- defined as the whole hemisphere of the Americas. Definitely, you know, that's part of my history as well. So, so yeah. So, I, but but I was I I totally understand that. You know, just one final thing on your little uh, personal background, but I think it's so important for our discussion. Um, Do the right thing came out at that time, around that time, Spike Lee, and you being uh, half Italian, half Sicilian. uh, (laughs) How did you respond to that movie? You know, it's it's interesting. I I think um, you know, 
I, I came to really um, appreciate and value and, and honor, I guess, my uh, Italian slash Sicilian ancestry later in life. You know, um, as a kid who grew up black in New York, and really, it was a period in time where, you know, um, people weren't walking around considering themselves biracial, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. that became a later phenomenon, you know. You know, the one drop rule very much applied, um, yeah. you know. Uh, but nevertheless, I, I was still really um, seeking um, for a variety of reasons, but still seeking a kind of personal identity. Um, also, I think, you know, uh, masculine and male uh, figures and images to look up to, uh, and my cousin and my uncle, you know, I had some very important and my, my other uncle, John, on my mom's side, but certainly my my uncle, Michael and David uh, on my father's side were instrumental figures in, uh, you know, uh, me pursuing not only a sense of personal identity, but a sense of um you know, belonging to a history that, um, you know, I really didn't know. Um, I, I went to predominantly white schools um, in New York mm-hmm. and, um, you know, I was blown away by the lack and, and dearth of information about Africa and so on. So, uh, you know, I had to cobble together uh, an understanding of my blackness um, over time. And so I became, you know, uh, a voracious reader um, at an early age. Yeah, I, I totally, uh, identify with that. Um, and, and yeah, that, that point you mentioned, we, we can expand on that as we proceed to, through the discussion, but about identity, I, I think that, um, a lot of people who don't understand the, the power, uh, of Malcolm X, I mean, how, how he transforms, especially young men's lives entirely. My whole life changed because of Malcolm X. That's why I live in Trinidad and no longer up uh, in, in Toronto, where the rest of my family live. And they thought I was crazy because I left. Um, but I couldn't live there anymore. <laughs> I mean, the whole sense of, of an identity, both, uh, as you mentioned, masculine, being a man, mm-hmm. and also uh, racial, ancestral uh, identity as well. This sense of belonging, of history, of the alienation from from the environment which you're in. Um, I think a lot of people don't understand the depth of that alienation uh, that exists. Um, you know, for essentially non-white people. That that's what it is. And and African Americans in particular have, you know, have. I mean, have a deep, long, long history of that. You know, I, I come from an immigrant family up up there, so so it's not the same. And I totally recognize it's not the same as the African American experience. You know, um, the descendant of slaves. I I, th- I think that's very very important uh, to to differentiate and to acknowledge. Uh, yeah. Um. So yeah. So well. So now your book, which is um, so, you know, which which brings you here, uh, uh, Malcolm X in the Oxford Union. Uh, why uh, can you tell us the story of why and how you wrote that book on on that particular um, event? Yes. Well, you know, it came about rather unexpectedly. I had published a, my first book on uh, the, the American presidency, and you know, thought I'd be. Um, you know, a kind of scholar on the presidency and the American governorship. Uh, and I, uh, but I was also teaching a course in black political thought 
uh, at Lehigh University in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania at the time. And in, you know, as all, you know, teachers are want to do, we look up, you know, materials and, you know, I was like, well, what would be a good speech for, you know, students to kind of get a, a gist of black nationalism and Malcolm X and, and what was going on? And, you know, I had glossed over a number of times the Oxford speech and I had seen brief clips of it, but I never really gave it its due. So I went home one day and actually read the text, read the speech. And then, I, you know, I was struck by how little of it I had really ever heard or known. And then, of course, the more I dug into why he went to Oxford, what was going on in the UK in 1964, uh, Malcolm's other trips to the UK that year and also in 65 prior to his death, uh, what was he doing in Paris a week before the Oxford address? All of those things, uh, you know, piqued my curiosity. And I came to think of it, man, this is not just a speech. This is a moment globally because Oxford uh, presented um, an opportunity for him to speak to what was happening, not only in America, but really in, in Europe with respect to the racial post-colonial transformation that was uh, Europe was experiencing. Um, and it, it was a powerful moment. I was like, you know, there's a book here, <laughs> you know, the more I dug yeah. it. And so, and then I started to, um, you know, acquire some research funds. I started to travel. I went to Oxford. I went to the UK, went, visited Paris, you know, visited the London School of Economics, uh, uh, where he uh, also spoke, uh, had an interview with the editor of the student newspaper, that person I got a chance to talk to, uh, had a nice interview with Tariq Ali, uh, mm-hmm. who was uh, then 22 when he met Malcolm X at Oxford. Who, uh, and, you know, Tariq Ali is now obviously a prolific writer, novelist, uh, columnist for The Guardian, um, filmmaker, etc. But at the time, he was just a 22-year-old about to become, the following year, the president of the Oxford Union. And he gave me a great deal of time over the phone to talk about what his experience was like with Malcolm. So the research process just added more layers to what was taking place that I had really glossed over um, as a sort of student of Malcolm X in my in my uh, youth. I, I found well, it really intriguing. Yeah. So what would you say the main argument of your book is? The... Up, yeah. The upheaval that we're experiencing now in the United States and in um, Europe, and uh, to be, you know, to just to limit it to there, the, the upheaval there we're experiencing is related to the racial and demographic changes that both, uh, you know, Western slash, you know, majority white uh, parts of the world are experiencing. And the rise, the backlash towards that, the white nationalist backlash, the, the populist backlash towards that really was beginning in the late 50s and frankly, early 60s, right at the moment when Malcolm was speaking at Oxford. And if you look at that address and the weeks surrounding it uh, and his life experience, you are going to get a blueprint for the problem, but also I think how Malcolm and I think rightly uh, any of us might address it. Uh, from the standpoint of promoting, you know, human rights uh, in countries that have long been um, mocked by white supremacist policies and attitudes. So I I, I view Oxford as a kind of 
pivotal speech, but also pivotal moment in thinking about how we got to where we are today. Uh, and I think M- Malcolm prophesied as much over what was going to emerge in Europe and in the United States as black and brown populations began to make up increasing numbers uh, of the population. Right. And uh, so I, I want to get um, a proper understanding of when, when you say how Malcolm's uh, speech at Oxford for you was so, uh, I, I don't know if unfamiliar is a word, but but surprising. And, and, and there were things you didn't... Um, pick up on earlier what so what were those aspects that you know surprised you well i think you know for me you know as a young man um really you know still in my in my in my youth i gravitated towards the earlier period in malcolm's life the time with the nation of islam to be sure uh, the earlier speeches, I, I deem them as uh, more fiery, more nationalistic, more militant. And I kind of, you know, glossed over the Mecca period and the, and his last year. I didn't really see much significance in it, frankly, in my teen years, you know, and even into my early 20s. What I was surprised by was how chock full of uh, power and um, and depth of thought there was in Malcolm's um, thinking at that time and experiences, not just related to his travels, but just his view of the world and his view of what it was going to take to, um, you know, resolve the kind of racial hatreds and um, and also uh, policies that were afflicting black and brown people around the world. I was struck by um, his diary uh, you know, that became available. I read that at the Schomburg, his travel logs and diary that he kept, his his really revolutionary development. You know, he, he began to question black nationalism as a philosophy, not simply because he, you know, uh, was seeking a multiracial um, pathway towards, you know, uh, human rights, certainly part of it, but the real element was that he didn't want to exclude other revolutionaries like the Algerians who had been, you know, um, you know, fighting against France and uh, the Vietnamese. And, you know, uh, Malcolm began to have a global view of how white supremacy needed to be attacked. And in fact, um, I think had he lived was likely to develop, you know, relationships, uh, political relationships with you know, white supporters who were similarly situated in opposition to colonialism, imperialism, and white supremacy. And so I was struck by that, uh, by, by his self-critique uh, of black nationalism. Uh, and also the other thing, Kirk, was his... Um, his apologies to civil rights leaders and organizations... You know, I came across, you know, documents where he was writing them and saying, look, you know, Roy Wilkins and whomever head of the SCLC and head of, you know, uh, XYZ organization, you know, forgive me for the harsh language I used against you, but I'm willing and and desirous of working, um, uh, uh, you know, on a united front to resolve the questions of racism in America. I thought that was an incredibly uh, significant moment. 
um, and a leadership lesson, frankly, you know, uh, for all of us to learn how we can find um, opportunities uh, to link up with people who we may have been adversarial with in the past. And Malcolm had said some God awful things about <laughs> civil rights leaders, you know, uncle Tom's and, you know, he, he you know, uh, uh, house Negroes, et cetera. Yeah. But, Aunt Jemima. He didn't mince words, but I yeah. got to a point in his life where he's like, you know, um, I want to be in the game and confront, racism head on, you know, so he goes to Selma briefly, you know, and gives gives that House Negro field Negro address there. That's part of his his doing in Selma. He is, I think, ready to um, not become, you know, uh, officially joined with civil rights organizations, but to work with them at home and then also internationally work with uh, organizations and, and states uh, to resolve the black crisis in the United States from the standpoint of international human rights violations. Um, so I think, you know, his growth and his, um, uh, you know, seeking uh, to create um, points of unity uh, was really powerful. And I didn't realize, you know, in my youth, uh, how significant and consequential those efforts were. Yeah, I that that's very interesting, um, especially uh, for me because I I came in almost from the opposite perspective uh-huh. because I I was kind of coming from from the left. Let's say um, you know at that time there was all sorts of international struggles like anti-apartheid stuff and uh, um, the like El Salvador and 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 I I was just like looking at all these radical ideas that I was just being introduced to. And, you know, a Malcolm X, you know, it seemed to me one of the most radical ones, people, that, you know, someone that people were actually scared of. And I said, wow, I have to check this guy out. And it's like, um, and and I was sort of introduced to it through um, through Pathfinders. I think, I think it was Pathfinders. You, you know who I'm talking about? No, I don't. Um, that's the socialist pub- publishers of his yeah. last speeches, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so they they did like Malcolm X and Afro American history. Uh, Malcolm X speaks, I think, um, yes. and and another one. So they have they had three books. So those are the books that were originally available to me, and it was his last period, right? So so in fact, I mean, they did a lot to kind of internationalize his his. Uh, uh, yeah, his his ideas and thought, and 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 Malcolm himself. I mean, you know, talked about uh, so, so they would ex, you know like excerpt certain sentences like Malcolm X on socialism, yeah. Malcolm Malcolm X on Fidel Castro, mm-hmm. Malcolm X on the Congo Revolution, and and whatnot. So so they were kind of you know pushing that uh, socialist interpretation, and you know when I when I started you know and then it, it just he totally transformed me. Because then instead of, you know, I kind of had a kind of white liberal view of radicalism before, like saving other people, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then when I realized how much, uh, you know, how much of my own liberation was was uh, was hidden from, uh, from my own oppression was in a sense, um, you know, hidden from me, my alienation from myself, my identity, my back. It just, it was just a revelation for me. But so as I started to delve into those earlier stuff, so whereas you, it sounds like you started from the earlier stuff, like there were certain things 
for me, that was, it was very, very difficult for me to accept. Like when I first started to hear the talk of Yaqub and the scientists and the, um, and, you know, and, and this, the, um, the motherships and, and, and this sort of stuff, I was, I was like, what, wait, this is insane. This is crazy. Right. Well, and, but then, you know, later, uh, later on, I really sort of came to terms with it, understanding the, the you know, deeply the uh, the 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 black tr- um, religious tradition um, and, and the resistance in, embodied in, and also, if you want to put it this way, the kind of anti-materialism or anti-modernity aspects of it. It's not just about. Um, you know politics in the here and now, and 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 um, you know having greater GDP or, or a greater standard of living, or, or so, it's it's something much, 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 much deeper that affects your entire way you view the world, history, your place in it, and it definitely involves a spirituality. I, I I don't know if you if you want to comment on on those things. Well, I think it's it's very true, and and we we must not and we cannot detach, you know, uh, from Malcolm X's uh, deep faith as a Muslim and a religious leader and figure. He was a Muslim minister, you know, just as mm-hmm. Dr. King was a a, a Christian minister, um, and you know, uh, a great deal of Malcolm's um, humanity came from the fact that he had a very grounded sense of who he was. Uh, you know, as a Muslim and his connection to the Islamic world and also his personal practices. They were, you know, profoundly uh, embedded in him. Um, And so I think that's certainly part of it. Um, And I I think what, you know, what he learned or ultimately decided was that those beliefs, uh, as significant as they were, could not and should not inhibit him from reaching out uh, and, and engaging with those who uh, not only didn't have those beliefs, but may have had no, no beliefs, you know, atheists, socialists who, who, who identified maybe as atheists um, and Christian ministers in some of his best talks. You know, the message um, to the grassroots is, uh, you know, uh, Reverend Klieg has invited him, you know. So yeah. uh, he's he's reaching out and, and you know, trying to. I think connect himself to a world, and he described it as such a worldwide revolution, you know, um, yeah. that was occurring where the darker peoples of the earth were, you know, throwing off the, the shackles of colonial oppression and so forth. And I think, um, to, and, and to not put too fine a point on it, I think that's, you know, what ultimately made him most dangerous. You know? Yeah. I mean, and, but e- even in the Nation of Islam, in his speeches, I mean, they would talk about, right, remember the Bandung Conference yes. in 55? Yeah. He, he referred to the Bandung Conference, the rising of Africa and Asia, you know, uh, and, and so forth. So, yeah, and, and it's, it's, it's like, because the Nation of Islam, is, as you uh, are well aware, is, is a very Garveyite organization. And, you know, and Garvey, um, you know, I think he's, the, the greatest um, you know black organizer in history hands down I don't think any I mean he had millions of people in every country wherever black people were he inspired every African independence leader in the 50s and 60s um, uh, he was uh, just just and and then his movement in the United States was so huge but but he was um, you know vilified in the United States and, and it's incredible how 
how he's viewed there as opposed to in the rest of the world, um, you know, as a kind of crank uh, figure but, and, and disgraced because of, of you know, the, the circumstance of deportation and the mail mm-hmm. fraud and, and all that. But, um, but certainly, um, yeah, that, that Garveyism that I think, um, you know, uh, underpins the nation, underpins his, his own, uh, Malcolm's own work. I, I think that your book um, definitely uh, gives a lot of details, puts it all together in one place in a, in a very important way. In in uh, you know that that, that was a, that was a hugely uh, globalizing moment, if if you want to put it in in that way. Also, he may have had the ideas and and stuff before, sometimes nascently here and there. It, it definitely informed it. But being there, uh, w- you know, was part of, of that whole transformation happening. Could you expand on that for us? Well, sure. You know, remember, Malcolm's parents were Garveyites, you know. Um, and, and his mother was Grenadian. Yeah, there you go. Shout out uh, uh, to, to, to my uh, Grenadine brothers and sisters, right? You know, mm-hmm. um, you know yeah, his, his parents were Garveyites. I mean, they were and they were highly active. I mean, they traveled frequently. You know, there is a school of thought. And I think the late Manning Marable, um, mm-hmm. you know, talked about this where Malcolm when he went to prison was not, you know, sort of the savage in the wilderness that a lot of people or that he portrayed himself to be, that he actually had some knowledge of self, you know, um, uh, from his parents and and Garveyism, that was much more of a political person entering prison than he wanted to tell, because of course he wanted to emphasize his transformation uh, under the teachings of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. And, and, and to do that, he kind of had to, you know, uh, put a wet blanket on what he knew before, but there's some good evidence to suggest that Malcolm, you know, had a great deal of black pride, a great deal of, uh, you know, knowledge, uh, you know, before he went into prison, I think, you know, um, the nation of Islam and Elijah Muhammad, um, you know, provided, um, you know, uh, more of a framework and, and certainly the opportunity for him to use his leadership skills that, you know, were, were clearly there, but, uh, you know, had no, uh, no place to go. Um, and, and, you know, to build on the, whatever edifice of knowledge he had before, uh, and, and to, you know, um, utilize them, but that Garvey beginning, um, you know, can't be erased from, uh, you know, the Detroit red, story and narrative that, you know, survives. And yes, Malcolm, you know, was a petty crook, et cetera, and a criminal and all of those things. Those stories are true. But what's less understood, I think, is the influence uh, of that Garvey background on his thinking, even before he became, you know, Malcolm X. Yeah. In in fact, you know, uh, that's a very important point, because I think that um, the influence of Garvey uh, in Afro-America is, is, highly underappreciated i i to, to this day um i i think it's it's very strong but but the rest of america and by extension the world uh, i don't think really understand uh the profound and lasting impact uh, it, it has had in, in all levels of society because garvey there was literary garveyism to political to economic to, in in every sphere of life i mean it was it was so um, massive from the from the making of black dolls and and yeah. uh, and stuff like that. It was just uh, so profound, yeah. And and that um, 
that yeah it, so therefore it would not be surprising you you didn't have to be a kind of uh, in other words you didn't have to be kind of a well-read you know political wonk to know about garvey not at all he this was a mass mass movement that's right yeah. that's right yeah yeah and 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 i mean the things i, I wanted to um get from you uh, from your own research was uh you know the types of meetings he had in uh in Oxford, and then that Oxford trip itself were, was part of a, a larger itinerary, which was linking up the the Afro-American struggle with the global struggle. And that's why, I mean, Malcolm X never contained himself to the United States of America, that this was a civil rights struggle that you had to um, seek your rights in the courts for, right? I mean, he, he, he ridiculed that position because he, he saw it from a global perspective. So if you could just um, yeah, help us out with that. Absolutely. Well, you know, before Malcolm is is murdered, you know, he visits Smethwick, England. And I visited Smethwick and, you know, um, and it's very much a, a very strong South Asian community today. Very powerfully so, uh, mm-hmm. at least, you know, parts of it. And, you know, at the time he visited, you know, uh, people were not uh, letting or renting uh, to black and brown folk. They were, you know. The city was buying up property to prohibit, you know, private folks from renting out to, you know, South Asians from uh, black folk from the Caribbean. And Malcolm was walking those streets of Smethwick, England, of all places. I mean, what black person in America even heard of Smethwick? You know, I, <laughs> yeah. I damn near didn't know how to pronounce it till I went, you know. That's right. You know, yeah. the and the spelling right. doesn't help at all. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> right. You know, um, so uh, the, what was the point? Malcolm was saying, you know, this is a global struggle. Black folks in America, guess what? You are part of a an international struggle for racial justice. The difference is if you see yourself connected to uh, black folk in the Congo, if you see yourself connected to Indian and Pakistanis in Smethwick, England, if you see yourself connected to the North Africans in uh, the Banlus or, or, you know, the hoods of, uh, of pa- surrounding Paris, if you mm-hmm. see yourself connected to the Chinese who are, who have just gotten their freedom, right? If you see yourself connected to, and on it went, uh, mm-hmm. then you have real power because now you're talking about not being a minority, but being a majority, you know, of the world yeah. population, right? Um, and, and I mentioned in the book, you know, he had told, I guess, I guess it was what uh, Mar- Mario Van Peoples, the film director, um, mm-hmm. uh, in 1964, Van Peoples had asked him, you know, what was the most important event of 1964? Thinking that Malcolm would say, well, the Civil Rights Act or the election of Lyndon Johnson. And he said, it's the Chinese, you know, uh, getting the atomic bomb. Yeah. Because for Malcolm, that meant, you know, China could stand on its own against the Western powers, the colonial powers of the world. China, um, you know, would never be, you know, carved up again. You know, there would be no more opium wars. There'd be no more, you know, um, yeah. uh, you know, no Chinese or dogs welcome signs anymore, you know, as Vijay Prashad and others talked about, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in, in his book about, you know, race and, 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 the, and the Asian experience, you know, mm-hmm. so Malcolm, you know, 
and, and Van Peoples said about that, he said that brother had a decolonized mind. And, mm-hmm. and I think that's, you know, that's a, a, an outstanding point. And Malcolm was trying to link all of these struggles and ultimately hoping that the United Nations would provide a forum for uh, assessing um, the black minority in the United States as a group that was in need of, you know, um, a human rights intervention. Yeah, and, and, and that's an important point because people might forget that um, a lot of these countries were now becoming independent in the 60s. So Trinidad and Tobago, my country just became independent mm-hmm. in 62. Jamaica became independent in 62, right? So I mentioned Garvey. Garvey's a national hero in Jamaica, right? So our perspective is totally different, right? So, um, so the world's perspective on the Afro- Afro-American struggle um, you know, it would be much more sympathetic. All the, you know, Ghana became independent in 57. Right. Um, I think Nigeria was 1960. You know, I mean, so you, you had all these countries uh, gaining and, and the UN was having to accept them as equal members with the, with the same one vote as the United States of America. And, and Malcolm saw that very clearly and he saw what that could mean. Uh, and it was still a world of possibility in 1964, 65. Yeah. Yes. And Malcolm was profoundly affected, deeply hurt, um, and shattered by by the murder of Patrice Lumumba. Mm-hmm. I think that that was, uh, you know, that murder and Ronald Stokes's murder in 1962 at the hands of Los Angeles police, those two murders, one international, one domestic, I think really shook him. Uh, and, and, and I think just brought home, you know, the connection between, you know, how white supremacy functioned around the world, but also at home and, and um, you know, uh, and what it was willing to do to maintain power. Malcolm, not that he was surprised by it, but I just think on an emotional level, really shattered yeah. uh, because Malcolm was profoundly, yes, uh, an internationalist, but really also very much an Africanist. Um, yes. in, in his teachings, you know, um, he would frequently chide his black audiences. You're nothing but an African. You don't like mm-hmm. to be called that, but you're nothing but an African, you know, yeah. uh, and like Garvey emphasizing why that was, should be a point of pride. Your blackness should exactly. be a point of pride. Uh, your I, I, I remember a speech, it, it, his, uh, I think it was in the Yakub, one of the Yakub speeches that was recorded in um, the end of white supremacy. Um, Benjamin two X, I think did that. Um, and uh, where he said it, so this was deep in the nation of Islam. Did he said, why can a, a black man from Africa wearing nothing but a sheet get into, you know, this hotel, whereas you can't because he knows his history and you don't, you know, this, that, um, yeah, that was definitely uh, uh, part of, uh, you know, his, his his discourse from ever since, ever since. Absolutely. Well, you know, part of what Elijah Muhammad was doing and, and very much what Garvey was trying to do was to give black folks a country. You know, and you, you mentioned your immigrant, you know, experience, Kirk. And it's, it's like, you know, Elijah Muhammad, look, we need a flag. <laughs> you know, yeah. we need yeah. uh, we need we need a, you know, a, a country. We need a, a system yes. of thought that connects us to, to a piece of land. You know, that was. Yeah. Really important. Just a, a quick aside. It, to me, it speaks sure. volumes, but it, it's a silly thing. But I think it 
I, I hope your audience appreciates it. But Richard Pryor was very much uh, influenced by Malcolm X, the black comedian yeah. in the United States. And I remember it might have been his um, his uh, special live on the Sunset Strip, um, you know, in like 1981 or two or whatever, whenever it came out. And, you know, someone in the audience called out to Richard Pryor, hey, make fun of the Mexicans. And he sort of shrugged and laughed a little bit. He said, no, nah, I'm not going to make fun of the Mexicans. And then he paused and said, you know, they have a country. Yeah. <laughs> and what, a, what a biting comment as a, as an African-American. Absolutely. To feel uh, as uh, you are in a country that is not your own. And I thought, you know, how Malcolm of him to, to, to make that retort. Yeah. We still don't have, you know, we don't have a country. And yeah. I, yeah. And Malcolm, you know, reminded black folk, you know, and I, and I have to say, I feel the same way. If you can't pick up the phone right now in, in the United States as a black person, if something is wrong or you feel someone is maybe threatening your property or whatever, if you can't pick up the phone and call the police and feel they will make not make the situation worse as opposed to better, you're still not really a full citizen. <laughs> and Malcolm liked to remind his audience of that. You are people still without a country. As much as you think, you know, you're an American, I got news for you. You really aren't. And that yeah. that um, was a huge undercurrent uh, of why he wanted to connect African-Americans to the global struggle against white supremacy, uh, because, you know, there they would have some kind of mooring and connectivity to other people and to other countries. Absolutely. I mean, because that shook me to the core when, when I when I you know, when that hit me and started to get into Malcolm X, I mean, that was like, I was like, wow, I, I was pretending I was something I was not. And, um, and I realized I, you know, it's not my country. I mean, it was, it was really, really, <laughs> to this day, it's, it's, a, it's you know, it, it, it's a profound uh, insight for me, uh, particularly, you know, to how I grew up and, and whatnot. But um, you know, there, there. So th this is an interesting thing about black nationalism. Um, I, you know, I, I am uh, profoundly, personally moved by it. I am convinced by it intellectually and historically. I, I believe there is a black nation on the American continent that has not been recognized or freed. I, I honestly believe that, and, and there's some great work uh, done done on that. Um, which I won't get into here, but but uh, but that's definitely what um, you know the Nation of Islam was talking about. Malcolm X embraced, um, but I I always wonder, you know, as as he was developing, as he was growing, and then you know making his alliances with other groups, and and um, you know and and wondering about the you know the realistic prospect of having a a, a black nation or not, and and. Um, and then you know, issue you know in the nation of Islam they eschewed politics because it was supposed to be solved by by God um, when the separation would occur. But Malcolm X, uh, when he formed the organization of Afro American Unity and so forth, that um, he wasn't taking that line. He was going to get involved and uh, and get involved in in the here and now. Um, and perhaps he, he perhaps he might have kept his his belief about you know ultimate judgment. I'm not sure, but um, 
what, what do you think about um, yeah his position on on black nationalism and a an Afro-American state and, and country by the end of his life? Um, you know, and right now I was I was really really surprised, and I must say heartened by the uh, the NF what is it the NFAC right? I'm sure you're aware of that. The, uh, the, the not fucking around coalition. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Um, tell me your, your thoughts on these things. Well, you know, Malcolm, after he dies, you know, black power becomes sort of the, the slogan and the, um, you know, the, the sentiment uh, that, um, you know, sort of breaks the conventional civil rights movement in two. And though, and, and you know, if I may interject, power, yeah, just mm-hmm. briefly, Stokely Carmichael is a Trinidadian, so there you go. There you go. <laughs> Shout out to Stokely, right? Uh, who, who should get his due as, as, a, as a considerable and remarkable figure in, in the struggle for sure. Um, you know, I, the Black Power movement, you know, is are the heirs and is the heir to to you know Malcolm to to Garvey and so forth because ultimately, what was the sentiment behind Black nationalism was, you know, you can. Uh, protest all you want, but you don't control your own image. <laughs> Other people control your images. You don't control um, the education of your children. You don't control the s- stores in your neighborhood. You have no, you don't control the politicians in your neighborhood, you know, and, you know, damn it, if it's not still true, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, you know, um, if you look at, you know, uh, major black organizations, whether it's BET, uh, and, you know, and, and or, you know, Essence magazine or formerly a journal like Emerge, you know, there are very few, if any, black publications or media outlets um, that are black owned. Um, and, uh, you know, certainly we, we don't have to talk about what Hollywood has done to um you know, uh, black images over time and including up into the present, you know, there's some notable and worthy exceptions, but it's still a significant, uh, you know, problem. And in the world of hip hop, you know, we have Jay-Z and some other folk out there who have attempted to, you know, uh, and have had some, obviously, uh, some success at, you know, controlling production, but still, you know, black entertainers and, you know, cultural figures and icons are still really at the behest of white owned corporations and entities. And black nationalism said, look, you know, uh, this has to change because until you control your image, until you control, uh, have some control of your, of the, econ- the economy and resources of your neighborhoods, you're really going to be nothing but an outcast uh, in, in your own country. And that, that sort of, um, you know, I don't think that ever left Malcolm. I think, you know, in the end, he was trying to figure out a way and he wrote about it that, you know, how do I adhere to black nationalism while accepting someone like an Algerian revolutionary who doesn't see him him or herself as black, you know? Um, Mm. You know, Carlos Moore, who uh, was Malcolm's bodyguard, uh, you know, beautiful brother from... Uh, I, I guess he was from Brazil and then, you know, uh, you know, was uh, in Cuba for some time, you know, and I hope I'm not getting that wrong. It's been a while, but um, he was an Afro-Cuban ultimately, and he was Malcolm's bodyguard in, in, in Paris, um, said, you know, Malcolm was interrogating himself about everything, including racism within the Arab community, racism within, um, you know, Cuba, 
You know, um, and and I think he was interrogating himself about black nationalism to the degree that he wanted to link up with other revolutionary movements and anti-white supremacist movements. Uh, but there were occasions where there were white figures and, and radicals and revolutionaries involved that he wanted to include. Um, and just very briefly, there's a, a move, a moment at Oxford uh, where you can see the possibilities of a, a budding friendship between Malcolm X, a black American nationalist, and Hugh McDermott, a poet, but also a Scottish nationalist who takes the same side as Malcolm on extremism in the defense of liberty. And, and McDermott had long, you know, reviled, you know, Britain's historic uh, and England's historic, you know, uh, treatment of, of Scotland. Mm-hmm. And um, and we can see some of this in, the, in this sort of obviously the Scottish nationalist movement that that persists to this day. But you know it was interesting that they got along so well because yes, joined by nationalism, but ultimately a kind of um, rejection of colonialism. You know, and I think Malcolm was exploring the possibilities of that, and so um, recognizing that black folk needed power. Power was attached to what you own, to land. It was attached to you know, the control of your own image and so forth, something we, we didn't have. And I think arguably still don't really have much of if at all, um, uh, you know, uh, and, and, and yet also wanting to recognize that he, he wanted to give up the opportunity uh, clearly for whites who were in opposition to racism uh, to have a voice and have uh, the ability to, uh, to link up with, um, with he and others who, who were similarly situated ideologically yeah you you have a, a very uh interesting and important quote when you in your book in the epilogue when you um meet jesse jackson and he said that uh malcolm and uh martin should not even be mentioned in the same sentence and you know what i agree with him but maybe with a different conclusion than him mm-hmm. I, I i think you know they they really they really are so different, and and I think people correctly understood that they were different. Maybe they had a different understanding of why they were different. I'm not sure, but um, but the the opposition wasn't about violence and nonviolence. It, w- it was something much much deeper uh, about um, you know. I guess separation and integration is is a, is an easy, simple way to to say it, but it's something much much more than that. Um, and uh, yeah, so and and now you know I I can't say when it started, but when when I started to see Malcolm X being touted as a civil rights leader, mm. uh, I was you know <laughs> really shocked and taken back and think what I mean that's uh, I mean what would Malcolm say about that? Well, uh, what's your reflections on that? Yeah, no, I, I, Malcolm you know never saw himself as a civil rights leader. He saw himself as a human rights leader mm-hmm. for, and really to be frank never really saw himself as a leader i yeah. think he saw himself as a teacher um mm-hmm. as much as anything you know yeah um, i think that's important you know um uh, but if if he was any kind of leader it was going to be a human rights leader for for black justice in america mm-hmm. and around the world um and in part because he rejected the notion that black people had ever really been made full citizens to begin with I think that was the yeah. important point. Yeah. You know, um, if we're still fighting for the right to vote, you know, and even today in the United States, we're still fighting against voter suppression. There's still 
pulling polling booths from black communities. Well, what the hell? You know, they don't do that yeah. to real citizens. Exactly. He said there's no such thing as a second class citizen. Right. You're either a citizen or you're not. Period. Right. And I and I will <laughs> say this about Dr. King though. I will say this. You know, 1967 and 1968, you read King's speeches, he sounds he starts to sound a whole lot like Malcolm, you know. Yeah, yeah. In terms of his internationalism, yeah. yeah he, he, uh... Vietnam, but also King begins to start to talk about black pride. You know, mm-hmm. starts to talk about, you know, um, the need for self-love. Um, yeah, actually, let me ask you something about that. You might know, you know, um, uh, the Public Enemy song that starts off with that King quote. Which, what year, you know, where uh, we lost our religion, our culture, yeah, right. our gods. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, what, um, what speech is that from? What year is that? That always surprised me because it didn't uh, sound like King. That, that is not King. Um, that is, I, I want to say... Um, Khalil or Khalid Muhammad, I believe. I don't even think oh, it's it okay. not King. But King is not King. No, it's not King. But King does have some speeches uh, in 67 and 68 where he talks about, you know, black pride and beauty and, and how right. we look and our hair. And he, he starts to, you know, get into, um, you know, the dynamics of what we would typically identify with the black pride or black power or black nationalist kind of language or rhetoric. Mm-hmm. Um, part of what's happening though is King is, I think, in those years, very much disaffected, you know, with America, uh, very much disaffected with the possibilities for America to, you know, um, give up war and violence in exchange for social uh, and racial uplift. And I think uh, that um, that uh, prophetic disappointment he had, you know. Um, made him, uh, you know, draw closer to Malcolm in terms of, you know, uh, a kind of pessimism about America, but also, you know, falling back towards a kind of uh, sense of black pride, uh, rejection of America as an imperial power. You know, King starts to, you know, say things in 67 and 68 that are unimaginable in 57 and 58, because what, what he, what the, the conclusion is that we've got these laws on the books, but white attitudes and supremacy haven't changed. The lack of black power hasn't changed. You know, King goes to Chicago in uh, 66 and, you know, we begin to see his, when King goes to the North and the urban cities, he's confronting what Malcolm and so many had confronted years before in the black community, which is, yeah, you know, there's no official or de facto de jure segregation, but there's certainly powerlessness there. You know, there's um, police brutality, uh, there's economic blight, you know, and King is like, well, damn, you know, what do we do now? We've got the Civil Rights Act. We've got the Civil, uh, the Voting Rights Act. Uh, we'll get the housing bill eventually in 68 or right, the Housing Act. But where's the power, <laughs> you know, yeah. where's the economic justice? And so King begins to focus more on economic issues and a war on poverty uh, or, you know, a, a march against poverty. He begins to talk about economic justice. And, and that's really the terrain of the black nationalists more than anything. And, and the socialists, to be honest, yeah. it's not a civil rights uh, concern, uh, certainly not uh, previously you know, which was concerned strictly with desegregation. And Malcolm, you know, lampooned those goals, frankly, you know, what, what do we need? So you can sit next to white people on the toilet. You know, that's the kind of exactly, dismissive exactly. 
and then, and, then, and he would say things like, so you're going into their restaurant for them to make you a sandwich in the back room and they hate you and you're stupid enough to eat that sandwich. <laughs> right. So, you know, you know, and guess what? These resonated with black audiences. You know, they really, yeah. they, they clearly. But it's true. It's very practical. <laughs> you know, I, I and I, I wanted to, to um, also ask your uh, views on, on these things. Um, for me, when I became a nationalist, because Malcolm X definitively turned me into a nationalist, mm-hmm. and I, I've, I've remained one mm-hmm. since then. Um, and and I, I will tell you that with the rise in nationalism in the world today, um, I think it's it's a good thing. Um, I, I think it is anti-imperialist. I I, on, I do e- even you know in Europe and and the United States. Of course, there are other elements and extremist things that, of course, I can't support at all. But um, but you know, I mean, when, when Malcolm you know spoke about the the Democrats and the Republicans, and when he exposed the Dixiecrats and he exposed the hypocrisy of the Democratic Party so brilliantly. Um, uh, and and his description of the you know uh, committees and who, the segregationists in, in, tr- in control of all the committees and and um, Lyndon B Johnson friends Dickey and and, and all that stuff. Um, I mean, I I it, that was a major thing that, that one of the major points that that made me see, yeah you know I mean the you know that that distinction is really totally artificial. Oh, for a long time I. I had the, the kind of sense that I think most people have is that, okay, they don't like the Democrats or Republicans, but they'll sooner maybe vote for a Democrat or embrace a Democrat. And they'll never, ever, ever, ever touch a Republican um, because they're evil. Uh, but I, I honestly think that, uh, you know, when you look at the Nation of Islam's meeting with the KKK or George Lincoln Rockwell or whatever, they they honestly see both of them as the same. And I agree. I, I honestly agree. I think, you know, I could deal with a white nationalist much, much better than a, a white liberal who's, you know, who has these implicit biases about Western supremacy, you know, as as unquestioned, um, you know, tenets in in their background that that they they're not even aware of, you know. I I would rather deal with a with a white nationalist than, than a liberal like that, um, because I think we could have a we and we have had better conversations, um, and you know, in, in in terms of of you know a lot of these things that that are going on on today and. Uh, you know, Black Lives Matter, and I, I think it's problematic the, the the folding in of the you know LBGTQ uh, IA movement into that, and and you know people, and then also you know like like that movement taking on the language of the civil rights struggle, uh, even immigrant groups taking on uh, the language of the Afro American struggle. Uh, I I I think that with a with an improper understanding of Malcolm X. And calling him a civil rights leader, all these things become possible, which I think um, muddies the water. It 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 makes things unclear, and and I think to the detriment of Afri- African Americans as well. Um, but I'd, I'd like to hear your your opinion on those things. So let me take the last part first, which is that you know um, all groups have benefited, or many groups have benefited from. Uh, the black freedom struggle in America, things like affirmative action, um, and have piggybacked, if you will, off of off of the black struggle. Part of what I think Malcolm's 
challenge was to black folk uh, was that, you know, you don't have, you know, control over black organizations. You really don't have, you know, powerful black organizations that can lobby successfully for uh, domestic and foreign policies that are going to be, um, you know, to your liking. And so part of what happens is that, you know, other movements, you know, have successfully, whether it's uh, women's liberation movement, you know, uh, you know, Latino movements in America, uh, gay and lesbian movements and so forth, have successfully, you know, um, you know, co-joined their their own struggles and, and, and language about justice um, with that of the black struggle in the United States. But, you know, we as you know, members of 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 a, of a black community in the United States have frequently not had uh, control or power over our own organizations to the degree that we can speak with a singular voice or a powerful enough voice to articulate a position that either Democratic or Republican Party uh, is likely or, or or bound to respect. And so it comes back to powerlessness and 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 versus yeah. power if, an organization if, and control over organizations. You know. Um, if, if I can interject here, yeah. Malcolm used to have a brilliant, brilliant analysis of how the media chose black leaders for for the country. Um, how they would, you know, by just sticking a microphone in, in front of somebody's face and having, you know, other people, you know, whites or Jewish people controlling like the NAACP or other civil rights organizations, as opposed to some, an organization like the Nation of Islam or like the Garveyites or whatever, where it's black funded, black controlled, and therefore the narrative is not the approved mainstream white American narrative. So they are marginalized, even though they're the real self-organized black communities and self-chosen black leaders um you know and, and he talked about that in in the speech at, at oxford about uh you know uh with uh, the con- the conflict in the congo and basically how the media keeps manipulating images and it's so relevant right up to today but yeah and that's part of the powerlessness of um of the black uh, organizations in terms of the, in terms of their lack of control of the media because the media chooses who who is the legitimate leader so Farrakhan is banned right Farrakhan who is a legitimate black leader and whether you like him or not he is a legitimate black leader but he he is silenced you know I think that's right I think you know um, again part of Part of what it comes down to is, uh, is there, are you able to even articulate a, a kind of black agenda? There have been efforts and there was, you know, there have been, uh, you know, meetings and gatherings in recent years uh, to promote a black agenda in the United States um, and, and to a lesser extent around the world. Um, but these these have been, you know, um, you know, maybe important forays into the subject. But, you know, at the end of the day, it comes down to, in the American democratic system. It comes down to um, the way our system is construed. Do you have the dollars and economic resources to control politicians uh, and, you know, people in your community to, to advocate for the things you want? You know, it, it, it's it's well and good. And I think it's it, it's right for, you know, uh, black organizations and leaders and others to to see, um, you know, the relevant um you know, just causes of other groups. I, I don't think that that's mm-hmm. um, that those two are mutually exclusive. I think you know when we talk about intersectionality or we talk about alliances. I think that's those are all important. You know, Malcolm 
met with uh, the survivors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, you know? Um, And it was a beautiful moment. He he was able to connect himself and see himself as part of other people's struggles and and misfortunes around the world and in their own issues with class uh, injustice and racial injustice. Having said that, we do know that historically Black folk get the short end of the stick out of these, you know, these alliances and are still in search of, um, you know, uh, economic, uh, and, and political empowerment in the United States. And you're right, you know, that the descriptive representation of a black senator or a per- justice on the Supreme Court uh, alone does not, you know, address the fundamental challenge of a kind of powerlessness. And I think, um, you know, control over the narrative of, of, of what's important is, is deeply, um, you know, linked to what Malcolm, uh, and I think, it's, you know, to a larger extent what black nationalism has sought to uh to provide um no one yeah, I, you, no oh, one's going to, just to put it just to cap on it you know no one's going to care for your community more than you are you know that's right. and um that's and that's just, and that's just the way it is um mm-hmm. and i think that that was a huge part of what you know um malcolm was trying to get across to his to, and and just to help people understand that you know you are part of a community. There are a lot of you here, and if we if we had some unity and we were able to link up with other people around the world globally, um, who had experiences and looked like you and so forth and faced similar forms of oppression, we'd be better off. Um, but I think that's still very much a struggle um, that remains, uh, you know, uh, in the balance, still still being fought. Absolutely. You know, you mentioned the Supreme Court, and I, I have to talk about Clarence uh, Thomas. Um, I remember in the 80s when, when you know, he, he, it was revealed that he was a, a strong follower of uh, Malcolm X or, or a, yeah, but he, he, a strong admirer of Malcolm X. A lot of people just could not wrap their heads around it. I, I certainly can. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's part of, you know, the self-development that was part of the, the Muslim ethic. Clean yourself up, get off drugs, have a job, be a, be a man, be responsible for your family. You know, this, um, you, know, you know, have self-respect and that's how other people are going to respect you. That was a strong, strong part of, of, um, of the Muslim message and Malcolm's message, you know. Uh, but what's, what's your opinion on on that and on well, I think on yeah, Thomas. So you know the, the the Muslim ethic and certainly the Nation of Islam and Black nationalist ethic was you know just give us an opportunity. Don't give us um, we're not asking for a handout. Just give us an opportunity and 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 we'll we'll handle it ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. Don't ask. Stop begging the white man to do for you what you can do for yourself. In so many words, right? In the language of many right, right. Well, you know. The only challenge or the challenge I have with with Clarence Thomas and, and sort of the movement from that kind of black nationalism into black conservatism or neoliberal conservatism is is the sense that, you know, somehow black people have not been um, deserving of reparations or, or racial and economic justice in this country. You know, um, I think that the, the critique of white supremacy and the critique of uh, ongoing white supremacy and racial violence inflicted upon black people and economic violence inflicted upon black people and the denial of, you know, um, you know, being able to own property in certain neighborhoods and on it goes, et cetera. And of course, that Thomas sort of and others 
like that, the Thomas Sowells of the world, if you will, sort of, um, you know, have no real critique of that. They just view black people to engage in self-help as if, you know, there's no opposition or no government responsibility to right the ongoing wrongs and historic wrongs that have been inflicted upon black people and people of color in this country. So I think that that's that's the, 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 the subtle but maybe most important difference between the kind of black nationalism that Malcolm X and others espouse, Stokely Carmichael's and, and so forth, versus or Kwame Ture's versus uh, what we see out of Clarence Thomas, which is like, I got no help for you. Do it yourself. You know, you're black and capable as if but absent a whole legacy of white supremacy, slavery, racial injustice, Jim Crow, redlining you know, police brutality, et cetera, et cetera, as if none of those things matter in the mix or that the state has no responsibility for addressing, you know, uh, those crimes. That's, I think, you know, the the different distinction I would make. And then another uh, more contemporary issue, Uh, Ice Cube right now getting a lot of heat for for just, uh, you know, um, responding to uh, Trump's... uh, you know, request to speak speak to them and, and that platinum agenda based on Ice Cube's contract with Black America, which he put to the Republicans and to the Democrats. But uh, I mean, Ice Cube has obviously, obviously the, the, the Black nationalists, Malcolm X view, listen, I'll, I'll work with any of them because, you know, it, it, you know, that doesn't, it doesn't matter to me if they're a Republican or a Democrat or whatever. I'm looking out for the interests of my people. And you, you can't tell me that I can't speak to Donald Trump or I can't, you know, or I, I only have to deal with uh, Joe Biden or whatever. Uh, what, what's, what's your take on that? Well, it's interesting. You know, I, I have a lot of respect for Ice Cube, uh, not only as a hip hop fan, but also someone who I think has, you know, um, you know, done important work in the black community uh, over, over the years and has presented, you know, certainly um, in, in more recent years and certainly recent decades, uh, you know, stronger image uh, for for black folk, particularly black men. Having said that, I do think Ice Cube's being used here. <laughs> you know, I, I cannot um, in mm-hmm. conscience uh, support um, the idea that somehow Donald Trump or the Trump administration is, is anything but a- deeply antagonistic towards uh, black folk and black uh, lives and racial justice, and, and somehow is uh, prepared to do anything other than continue to perpetuate white supremacy and police violence and, and, and so forth. And I think we've seen as much, you know, um, by their appointments and by uh, the just, a justice department that is uh, gravely indifferent to black lives. So I, I do think Brother Ice Cube is being used. He certainly has every right to speak to whomever he wants. I do think, you know, uh, Trump is a kind of uniquely situated political figure in American party politics over these last decades. Um, and I think, you know, um, I would I, I certainly would not, um, you know, encourage anyone to certainly anybody who's black who cares about black lives and, and, and our experience in America and globally, frankly, uh, you know, to think that they're going to get anything out of Trump other than a photo op, because uh, it's clear that he thinks if you're black, you know, your ancestors have come from, pardon me, shithole countries. You, you know, um, this is a person who advocated the uh, imprisonment and actually death penalty for five people in, in the Central Park Five case, uh, you know, and when when it was proven that those those brothers were innocent, nevertheless, to this day, insists that he was right and that they deserve to be, you know, um, you know, victims of, of, of uh, you know, uh, capital punishment, 
you know, subjects to, subjected to capital punishment. So I, you know, I have no no love or appreciation for Trump. Does that mean Joe Biden or Democrats are beyond criticism? Absolutely not. But I do think Trump, uh, Trump is a uniquely virulent figure uh, and virulently antagonistic towards Black lives, and so I, and has no evidence uh, of supporting in any way, remotely. Um, you know, black uplift, if I can employ that term. Um, quite the contrary, you know, from housing discrimination against black people, you know, the Central Park Five case, um, to just his rhetoric and language about black folk. Um, you know, so I think Ice Cube's being used. He doesn't see it that way. I think he, you know, he sees himself as, you know, uh, you know, advocating to both sides an agenda that that you know he believes in, and I and I appreciate and I respect that, but I don't. Um, I don't think um, it's it's particularly wise or, or you know, um, or astute on his part. And I, I would be there, you know. Yeah. And what, um, one more thing, sort of a reflection and extension of your book, because your book was written, was published so long ago, seven yeah. years ago. It was uh, published during the Obama era. And you were talking about how, uh, you know, how maybe, you know, the liberal ascendancy was up and, you know, things have changed uh, quite dramatically since then. But, uh, but e- even so, I mean, so, so reflection on, on that change um, might be uh, an interesting thing uh, to hear your perspective on. But, but even so, within that moment uh, of 2013, when the book was published, and you were talking about the Obama era, I thought what was very um, uh, poignant was um you know his malcolm's in in the speech at oxford talking about you know the the action in the congo and the drones and uh, well no not drones sorry the bombing campaigns and then it got me thinking about obviously obama who who bombed more people more countries used more drones and even george bush the war criminal you know i mean it was um uh i in in that respect i mean i i totally totally um uh, I'm absolutely critical of of the Obama administration and foreign policy there, but um, but yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I do call out Obama in that chapter. In that, yeah, I do call him out for those drone drone strikes to be sure, right? Because he justifies. I mean, he, in his uh, peace Nobel peace speech, you know, he justifies that kind of violence. Um, and I think you know that was the connection I I made as well in in that. Book and thinking about the, the the Stanleyville massacre and the, the attacks on uh, black people um, yeah. in the Congo, uh, yeah, the the drone strikes w- were and are a horrific example of uh, you know failed presidential leadership to take into account um, you know black lives, uh, but also just the lives of innocent civilians around the world, whatever color they might be. But certainly, it's a huge, huge connection. Yeah. I think an important connection to make for sure. Yeah, and and the black, I, I suppose, is the last thing I'd like to get your opinion yeah. on the black lives um, aspect of it, and and Obama's blackness. I I certainly, you know, I certainly have been critical of the fact that I think that, you know, many white liberals, in particular, maybe other other people as well, but um, but I'm focusing on the white liberals for some reason. Maybe I'm maybe there's a bias of mine, uh, an unfortunate one, but um. Uh, you know the the way they sort of feel they've ticked off that box of of um, mm-hmm. of, of of dealing with the, you know the racial past and whatnot with Obama, uh, but you know I I think it's very very important to note that you know Barack Obama is not the descendant of an African slave and to this day 
the descendant of an African slave has not yet sat in the White House. Um, and and even I th- I think his sensibility uh, in a lot of ways were were much more of a white liberal than a you know than than a someone rooted in the historic black struggle. That that's my opinion. I, I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Look, you know, I I, I don't want to uh, deny uh, Barack Obama um, his own racial identity or his blackness in the sense that, you know, I don't want to get in his head and, 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 and speak to um, his blackness in that way. What I will say is that you are right. You know, Obama comes out of a different historic experience, a different cultural experience, not really spending much time in, you know, in, in growing up in the mainland in the United States, to be sure, right? You know, kind of an international experience. It's a very different experience than, you know, um, you know, a typical, you know, black kid growing up in the United States, to be sure. <clears throat> what I will say, uh, so there's, to be critical, and then I'll be, you know, a, a little bit um, less critical of Obama, to be critical of Obama, <clears throat> you know, his, his political ideology is kind of that of, of a cautionary progressive, more of an accommodation, it's more of someone who's trying to bring sides together, you know, kind of a left of center, you know, a centrist in, in effect, uh, maybe a, more of a progressive uh, or to the progressive side than a Biden historically, certainly or Hillary Clinton, but in that domain, you know, uh, and I think that's um, almost psychically who he is as a person, you know, and I will get go there because I think there's good evidence mm-hmm. to point to the fact that Obama um, ha- has long been someone who's seen himself as bridging two worlds, right? Yeah. Uh, and I think, uh, even in his early efforts to reach out to Republicans and conservatives, uh, you know, reflected that disposition, which to, to bridge the divide, you know. So he's not a revolutionary. He's not a radical. He's certainly not someone even on the on, you know, to the left in, in, in American politics. I will say in fairness to Obama, and it's the fairness that I think we have to apply to any president, it would take an extraordinary figure and um, to do so. You know, an FDR had more yeah. more leeway to do it. But, you know. At the end of the day, the American presidency is a highly confined institution, you know, um, and, you know, anyone who takes that office is going to be severely limited. And just a case in point, Bob, Obama said, uh, you know, about the police officer who arrested Skip Gates, Henry Louis Gates in his home in Boston, you know, he called the officer stupid. So that was a stupid thing, you know, um, and there was such a wave of backlash that Obama had to have a beer summit with the police officer and skip mate, yeah. you know, which just speaks to, um, you know, again, the limited power of, of, of black folk in America, of black politicians to speak freely to, you know, you know, Obama got caught in a moment of uh, honesty. And I just think that, you know, in fairness to him, um, there are severe constraints upon any American president, but certainly an African-American president. I think, you know, there were, you know, innumerable uh, obstacles in front of him, not the least of which had to do with the fact that uh, everything he did would be examined through the lens of his being the first black president. So I have some real sympathy for him on that regard, but I also have, I think, you know, some righteous, dare I say, you know, criticism, particularly of his, conduct of foreign policy, the drone strikes, his uh, unwillingness to um, see that through the lens of hum- uh, of human rights. Uh, he certainly could have used his office to become a kind of prophetic president, uh, 
But I think that's not who he is dispositionally. I think his position is that of an institutionalist. He sees himself as part of a continuity of of office and in a sort of a narrative of American political history, rather than as someone who is going to break ranks with that history and tradition and to do something else. So no, he's not, you know, he's not a prophetic figure. He's a a historic figure. And I I will Mm -hmm. say this, and finally, I know I'm probably going over here. I will say for, for, for those of us who've been critical of Obama, it's also important to recognize, you know, that for many folks in the black community, the fact that he comported himself, at least personally and, and indeed in terms of, uh, you know, his ethics in the office from the standpoint of the law, you know, he comported himself with a kind of dignity that made many black people proud, not only the first family, but just, you know, um, mm-hmm. that he, he was an important symbolic figure and, you know, we can't lose sight of the fact that black people go to work every day in America and are treated like shit. And yeah. here's Barack Obama, you know, uh, with all of the confines uh, of the office doing the best he can. I think black folk in this country certainly admired and respected that. And I think mm-hmm. understood intuitively, oh, he can't make the changes that we need him to make. And maybe that was a, you know, a kind of a wrong mindset, but I think one yeah. hard bought over time, right? A kind of understanding yeah. that, you know, we know he can't do what he needs to do, you know? Yeah. Uh, so I think there's an element of that uh, as well in the mix in terms of his legacy. Yeah, I think so. I I, I like to say that, you know, Obama uh, looked like Malcolm, but spoke like Martin. <laughs> but uh, um, the last, yeah, the, just to, to wrap this up, I've, I've kept you here for a while and, and we can go on and on and on, I'm sure. But to, to sum up, what would you say, uh, you know, what about Malcolm X and his struggle? Do you think it's important for people to remember today and to take more seriously? So I think there are two things. For, for black people in, in the United States and really around the world, Malcolm's legacy is that of love, self-love. You know, mm-hmm. um, love your connection to Africa. Love your connection to a beautiful history. Love, love your physical body and, and your skin color and your hair and your, you know, the things about you that the society you're in most likely hates. Learn to love and appreciate that. That's first, first and foremost. Malcolm X is about black self-love, I think. And, and loving yourself enough to, you know, treat yourself and your family and, 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 and those in your community well. I mean, it can't be emphasized enough when there's still ongoing assaults on black uh, aesthetics, beauty, uh, and just being and black bodies. Malcolm was all about that. And I think internationally and and, and for others, Malcolm was about ending the uh, power of white supremacy, ending white domination, ending human rights violations against all people, uplifting Africa, uplifting the poor and the struggling, wherever they might be, making the connection uh, to you know struggles around the world for a different kind of world, and that's how he ends the Oxford Address, you know, by saying, you know, uh, I I don't care what color you are, so long as you're willing to end this miserable condition that exists upon this earth. Malcolm, in the end, was someone who believed that human beings had the capability or had to find it. Hell, they had to find it to rise up and to see uh, the horrors of the world for what they are and to take it on 
uh, irrespective of what background they had. I think that was the sort of broadest vision that Malcolm had and hope that maybe one day we would have a global community that would no longer tolerate the kind of injustices uh, afflicted uh, by one human being upon the other that were so prevalent in his lifetime and are so and, and remain so prevalent in our own. Excellent, excellent. Yeah. Well, um, before we close, uh, can you tell us about maybe any projects you're working at present that you'd like our audience to know about? Sure. Um, I've just published a textbook called Reconsidering American Political Thought, A New Identity, which uh, deconstructs America's political history through the lens of you know, race and gender and attempts to uh, retell the story of, uh, you know, American political thought and history um, with race at the foreground and gender at, at the foreground. And I'm um, completing a book on uh, that's called Stars and Shadows, The Politics of Interracial Friendship in America from Jefferson to Obama, examining historic uh relationships and uh, those that were successful and those that failed to try to bring about racial justice in the United States. So people like Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln, Marlon Brando and James Baldwin, um, you know, Angela Davis and Gloria Steinem and other cases where Ralph Ellison and Shirley Jackson from the standpoint of writers um, and, and, and how those relationships were uh, private, but also became public to the degree that they were about advancing uh, the possibilities of multiracial democracy. So th I hope to complete that book this year and have it out sometime next year. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Sounds great. Well, I want to thank you so much for this interview. It's been very informative and enjoyable. It's been a pleasure. Likewise, Kirk. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So once again, the book we were discussing is Malcolm X at Oxford Union, Racial Politics in a Global Era, published in 2013 by Oxford University Press. And we've been speaking to the author, Saladin Malik Ambar. And thanks also to you, our listeners. Make sure you sign up for our notifications so you don't miss any new interviews on this channel in the future. And I look forward to seeing you on the next episode.